Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Here by faith in Christ, here by faith will every soul dwell on this truth that Jesus doeth all things well. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven and our present comforter, our sweet Holy Spirit, and Jesus, our Savior, who leads us. We ask now that you would lead us in this time in your word. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would lead our precious brothers and sisters um, in India, we just heard about. So many, so many souls, so few gospel believers. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would lead our brothers and sisters in India to trust you. You would lead them in the growth of your church. We think, Lord, even of our brothers and sisters who are here in this building in in our um, ABFs in this moment. As they go through the lesson in uh, Acts chapter 4 today, Lord Jesus, lead them. As each of the ABFs hears the um, presentation of the uh, growing up and branching out opportunity that we have, we pray that you would lead them, lead them well. And now as we open up your word in the epistle to James, Lord, as we open your word, we ask that you would lead us, lead us well to the best of all possible outcomes. Mere knowledge can lead to arrogance, but the knowledge of the truth of the gospel can lead to affection. So, Lord, lead us and guard us from the former and grant to us the latter, that our love would blossom and grow in Jesus Christ as we open your word. Amen. Amen. This morning we'll be in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, and I'll say the sermon in a sentence. And the sermon in a sentence is simply this, if you are going to live forever, you don't want to place your greatest good in anything that won't last forever. If you are going to live forever, you don't want to place your supreme joy in anything that's not going to last forever. If you are going to live forever, You don't want to place your most lasting love in anything that's not going to last forever. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This text, like the Bible often does, spins us around and makes us stand on our head. Living is dying and dying is gain. And it says right away that the poor 
man or the poor sister should boast that they're the greatest and the rich brother or the rich sister should be humbled to glory or to boast is what it talks about there in verse 9. What are we going to glory in? What are we going to boast in? Now, we know that the Bible says that pride comes before the fall and that arrogance is distasteful and immoral. But the way that this verse uses boast or glory isn't necessarily in that bad sense of selfish arrogance. I hope you know the feeling of sort of that good feeling of this swelling up of of goodness and of gratitude and of accomplishment and of blessing and what could be called a sort of innocent form of, 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 of pride and blessing. I hope you know what it feels like to feel that way about somebody in your family, maybe your grandkids. You know how to feel that way about a promotion or a recognition. Not that you're just grandstanding in arrogance, but you know that you tried to do what was right and you tried to be faithful and then in a good sense, that's acknowledged and so God's glorified in that and you feel a sense of glory there. When it says that the lowly brother should boast or the rich brother should glory, this glory is, uh, uh, it actually, the the root word actually has to do with a, a, a swelling up, like a bubble filling up. And it's that feeling of uh, emotion swelling up in the, in the heart, and then it bursts out in the body. This, you just lift up your hands in gratitude and glory and joy. Again, not in this arrogance, but a sweet sense of feeling good about something that is good. We all know that feeling. And the Bible here, being the Bible, takes that feeling and sort of spins it around, and it elevates what we in worldly thinking would denigrate, and it denigrates what we in worldly thinking would elevate. And it says, what's the greatest reason for that feeling of glory? What's the greatest feeling for that reason for that feeling of joy? What's the longest reason for it? What's the highest reason for it? Well, James says in chapter 1, verse 2, count it glorious joy when you meet various trials. And then James says in verse 9, let the lowly or poor or impoverished brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich or successful or powerful in his humiliation. The way verses 9 through 12 fit in is that Verse 2, James told us we should count it a glorious joy when we encounter trials. In verses 6 through 8, in verses 6 through 8, James warned us not to pin our hopes and our greatest good and our greatest glory on uh, things that will shift and that will be unstable. The way that we, verse 2, count it glorious joy to encounter trials the way that we, verses 6 through 8, avoid double-mindedness and instability, the way that we do both of those things, verses 9 through 12, is that we fix the eye of our heart on that glory which surpasses all earthly glory. And we fix the gaze of our soul on that which, which will last forever. 
The way to activate the joy that is uh, commanded on us in verse 2, and the way to avoid the instability and the doubt that we're warned against in verses 6 through 8, is to keep the eye of the heart on that spiritual condition that stays constant, though circumstances shift around us. Keep your perspective elevated. Fix your forever joy on something that lasts forever. Make your greatest glory in that which will be glorious forever, not your temporary earthly condition, but something far better than that. So verse 9 speaks to the poor people, and it says, let the poor or the impoverished or the lowly brother, when it comes to money, if you don't have any. Interesting that when James is talking about what we glory in, the thing closest to hand is that earthly item that passes through our hand all the time, our money. And when it comes to money, we so easily place our hopes and our joys in money. And verse 9 says, if you don't have enough money, open your eyes up to the riches that God has given to you in Christ. He's given you the bread of life. He's given you the cup of salvation. Open up your eyes to the riches that God has given you. Open up the, the identity of your soul to what God has said about you. The world may look down on you if you're poor. The world may look down on you if you don't have any power. But God has not overlooked you. God has given you life. And verse 10 speaks to the rich. And verse 10 says, if you have money and power and success right now, don't boast in that, but rather be humble. Rather be humble. If you're wealthy and successful... If you're wealthy and successful, it says, you have found something more important than wealth and more secure than success. You found something that's so much bigger than being rich and so much stronger than being successful, and this something ought to make you humbled and overwhelmed that you have this blessing. In other words, verse 10 says, you could have, if you were worldly, you could have boasted about your wealth, but you have something much bigger than your wealth. You have salvation in Jesus Christ. You have a relationship with God. And that's what keeps you, verses 6 through 8, from instability. And that what keeps you, verses 2 through 4, joyful even in the midst of shifting circumstances. You maintain that perspective. I remember one of the very first verses that I memorized as a, a teenager my parents took me to Awana when I was little, and I'm sure I memorized a boatload of verses, but I, my memories are shaky of those years. But I remember like struggling with things and intentionally memorizing a verse when I was 13 years old. And the, the youth worker, not the pastor that was employed by the church, but one of the uh, the male staff member on the middle school ministry staff that was kind of my mentor. He was a real estate agent. He gave me this verse, and I remember writing it. I remember writing it on a paper on the wall in my room and memorizing it. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. 
And I remember setting the aspiration of my heart on, on being that kind of a man. And I have gone up and down <laughs> since then a lot. I haven't kept my eye on that ball. I, I, I missed it last week and started boasting in the wrong things. I miss it all the time, but at least I can tell you to this day, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward to what lies ahead, the call of God in Christ Jesus, that I would boast in nothing but this, that God has forgiven me all my sins and that he has taken away my folly and foolishness, which is all that comes from myself, and instead he's given me the wisdom of Christ. So when James says in James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that the poor person should be exalted and the rich person should be humbled, he's saying to the poor person, look, you're tempted to feel insignificant because the world judges you as nothing because you don't have any earthly power. But he says, remember, if you placed your greatest good on earthly things that could fade away, that would have been a mistake to begin with. And then he says to the rich, hey, the world makes much of you because you're wealthy and powerful, but he says, wait a second, if you place your greatest good on things that won't last forever, you've made the biggest mistake that you could make. He says, don't place your pride and your hope and your identity in what you have in this world. Instead, glory in the humble status that you have as a believer in Jesus Christ and the wonderful status you have as a believer in Jesus Christ. That's the same for the rich and the poor. Maintaining this perspective is most important. And we've got to say that maintaining this perspective is so difficult. We get, I mean, how long do we get together on Sunday? I realize sometimes during the sermon it feels like a long time, but it is not a long time. We're together for mere moments with our Bibles open, and every minute of every day, the world is sending you a different message, a different message, a contradictory signal. Maintaining this perspective is not easy because the world bombards us with the opposite message. And so the church has to be a counterculture in Jesus Christ where we don't value what the world values and we don't glory in what the world glories in. The church is the place where we actually say uh, our greatest feast is humble bread that represents the body nailed to the wood for us. And the church is the place where we say our greatest cup of joy is that the blood of our Savior was shed for us. If you're going to live forever, you don't want to place your supreme joy in anything that's not going to last forever. For a soul created by God for fellowship with God, to make money the most important thing to that soul is debasing to that soul. For a soul made by God for fellowship with God, to make money the most important thing to that soul is debasing to that soul. Rather than that, how do we protect our soul? Well, our, our protection and our security rests in full extent in the main choice 
of our happiness and our security. And so we need to become people who say, my happiness and my security is in God. If my happiness and security is in anything that I can lose, I will lose it. If my happiness and security is in God, then I have lasting love and supreme joy, and I can glory and boast like this. And so then, in a marvelous teaching move, James puts this into a picture to give us perspective. And so if you'll notice in verse 10, you have the word like in the middle of the verse. And the rich in his humiliation, because like, there's the comparison, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Verse 11, for, here's an explanation, for, for, the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will, there's the conclusion, the comparison, like, the explanation for, and then the conclusion, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So the picture is a comparison that leads to a conclusion. And what's the conclusion? The conclusion is, the flower falls, the grass withers, the beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The conclusion is how fragile we are. The conclusion is how nothing lasts except the love of God. The conclusion is how dependent we are. And the only thing that we can have security in is God and God alone. And it's hard to maintain this message because the world, you know, gives us a counter message all the time. The world is desperately trying to prove that it is what will give us happiness and joy. But the world is passing away, and this world will so soon come to nothing. This picture in James chapter 1, verses uh, 10 and 11, this picture in James chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, it comes from uh, the Psalms. Listen to how it's said in Psalm 90. Listen to Psalm 90, a Psalm of Moses. Psalm 90 says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. Psalm 90 says, like the wind which passes through and then is gone and invisible, or like the mountains which stand strong, that which is transitory is everything on the earth. That which is transcendent is God and God alone. The same picture is in Psalm 103. Brennan read part of this as our, uh, the open of our service. Psalm 103, listen to verses 13 through 17 of Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. 
The wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him and his righteousness upon children's children. And then the, uh, the place that I, I think probably James is quoting is from Isaiah chapter 40. These unforgettable words in Isaiah chapter 40 where the voice of the Lord says, cry, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 40 verses six through eight. God's word says, will you don't put this aside as hyperbole, but will you hear this? God's word says that all of human history is like the dew on the grass. God's word says, will you not put this aside as, as a, uh, some kind of poem and exaggeration? God's word says that everything that we have ever done and all the words that we've spoken and all the great acts in human history, all the talking and all the doing that we've done is like a tale told at a campfire in an evening and then it's over. But the word of God stands. And so in James chapter 1, we find this picture in verses 10 and 11, which pushes us, the picture pushes us toward a conclusion. The picture pushes us to believe that, that, that there's a greater blessing than the passing circumstances of this world. And that's why verse 11 says, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And then verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 11, verse 11 gives us four verbs, and each has a supplied subject. The sun rises, the grass withers, the flower falls, the beauty perishes. These four verbs, each with their subject, are like a time-lapse scene. And the point of the picture is to push us toward a better perspective, which is found in verse 12. The point of the picture is to say, why would you place your joy in something that doesn't last forever? It brings us to verse 12. Now, the ESV puts verse 12 as a new paragraph. I put verse 12 actually with verse 11. I'd make the paragraph break in verse 13 if they asked me, but nobody ever asked my opinion about anything. But I, I think verse 12, I think from verse 2 through verse 12 is one thought. Because look up at verse 2, you have trial. When you meet trials of various kinds. Look at verse 12. Who remain steadfast under trial. You have joy in verse 2. You have blessing, same thing, in verse 12. And then going on from verse 2 in verse 3, you have that wonderful and important word, the testing of your faith. And you have testing in verse 12, when he has stood the test. 
And then you have this all-important word, steadfastness, in verse 3, and then it's repeated in verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect. And you have that same word in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So verse 12 says, blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. Question, how do you get the blessing? Question, how do you get the blessing and the crown? The answer in verse 12 is you remain steadfast under the trial and you stand the test. You remain steadfast in the test of your faith and you withstand the test. So then the question is, how do I remain steadfast? How do I remain steadfast? And the answer to the question is, the only way that I can remain steadfast is if I have an anchor in something which will not fail. If my anchor is in how much money I have, if my anchor is in how easy and momentarily happy my life is, I'll never last. The only way to last with steadfastness is to have an anchor in something which never fails, which is to say, if you are going to live forever, The only way to have lasting joy is to place your anchor in that which will last forever. You have to place your lasting love in something that will last forever. And don't miss that word love. See verse 12? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Don't miss that word love. We're not talking about just biting your lip and gutting it out. We're talking about love. If you, if you are going to live forever, then you don't want to place your lasting love in something that won't last forever. One of the best commentaries that's been most helpful for me on the book of James is by J. Alec Mottier, who was an Irish commentator. And the way that he ends his commentary on verse 12 is with this, like, unforgettable little aphorism. He says, we live by what we love. We live by what we love. Mottier says, we live by what we love. The shape of our lives is determined by the loves of our hearts. The shape of our lives is determined by the loves of our heart. We live by what we love. How do we, how do we remain steadfast? How do we pass the test? What do you love? You love God. Now, when I was preaching on James chapter 1, verse 2, about counting it all joy, I talked about how tears and sorrow are not natural to us, and it's right to try to alleviate the suffering. And it is. But you know, oftentimes when we're in a trial, we spend 101% of our spiritual energy trying to get the trial off of us. We spend 101% of our prayer energy saying, God, take it away, take it away, take it away. What if we didn't do that? What if, what if we spent some of our prayer energy saying, Lord, uh, oh God, 
if you deliver me from this trial, then the fact that you take this trial away is gonna make me love you more. That's the one thing that I want. And oh my God, if you keep me in this trial and you don't take it away, the one thing that I want is me being in this trial to make me love you more. I can't even feel like I'm worthy to talk about Job. Can you? I've never been through nothing like that. But it's almost as if strip away, strip away, strip everything away. And when everything's gone, the human soul is like, God, there's some reason why you haven't killed me yet, but you've taken everything away. And it's almost as if the answer comes from heaven. When the human soul says, why am I even still here? Everything is so hard. It's almost as if the answer comes from heaven. I have one question left. Do you love me still? We live by what we love. And I spend way too many moments of my life loving a trouble-free life. And so do you. That's like all I want. And God wants me to want something better than that. Not money, not ease, not comfort, but love for God. We do live by what we love. And church, let me speak a gospel word here as we come to the table. The gospel word, the gospel table, the gospel feast is evidence that he loved us first. This is the meal that costs you nothing. This is our Savior saying, come and eat. Come and take bread without money and without price. For the Savior has said, the price that I give for the world is my body and my blood. He loves us first. He loves us first. And so he gives to us to love him still. And we'll remember that together. Let's pray. Lord God, give to us to love you more. And Lord God, give to us now to remember your great love for us. It can't start with us. It can't be our works. It always starts with you. You're the eternal one. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. From everlasting to everlasting, you have set your redeeming love upon us. So give to us now to remember your great and perfect love for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.